0: Uh, I'm going to start with a thought experiment. This is uh, just just to sort of set the mood. This is Annabelle. Uh, she's a member of an engineering team. She's responsible for programming her company's autonomous vehicle model, um, and she knows that at some point in time, her autonomous vehicle will be in the kind of scenario that is sometimes talked about in the popular media and in ethics scenarios, where it has to make a decision or be programmed to do something um, to, to elicit some behavior to choose between harms. Like human drivers can't do this when we confront harms in accident scenarios. We just freak out and beep the horn or whatever. Uh, that's what happens in Boston. Everywhere else they just um, veer. Um, so she knows she has to make some decisions. She wants She's thinking about whether and how she should make decisions about how to distribute harms in accident scenarios. Um, n- she knows that no matter how the car behaves, there's sometimes going to be a case where collision is unavoidable. Now, um, She's not interested in any way about what's best for her company's bottom line. She really just wants to do what she's obligated to do, all things considered. do. She wants to do the ethically right thing. So you can see this is a thought experiment. Um, <laughs> uh, she remembers in college studying trolley cases in an intro to philosophy class. Uh, these are just, we'll talk more about what these cases are in a little bit, but roughly cases where there's an out of control train running down the tracks and you have to make, a bystander has to make some decision about how to divert the trolley. Um, And she's read some popular media pieces and some philosophy pieces comparing those trolley cases to accident scenarios. And she wonders, could thinking about trolley cases help me to understand how I should program my autonomous vehicle, how I should get my team to build these things. Um, In this paper, what we want to do, or in this talk, we want to clarify how theorizing about trolley cases does and does not relate to the ethics of AV design. That's our goal. before we proceed, just a brief note, some people, um, we've talked to people who've made this objection, sometimes it comes up, that what Annabelle should really be thinking about, what someone should just tell her what the law should be and what policies should be, and she should just do what obeys the law. Um, and there are super interesting questions about how we should design policies for AVs, but we don't think that that is going to totally settle the questions for Annabelle. First of all, in the current political context, there's going to be little guidance over what av should do in these scenarios Um, and so until that time annabelle needs to make some decisions because the car elon is going to make sure we have autonomous vehicles before there are any laws governing those autonomous vehicles Um, but also even whatever the laws are there's a lot of latitude within even good laws for making ethical choices and so annabelle's gonna have to make decisions does she want to go do something more stringent than what the law requires Um, and so we think the legal questions are interesting and important but we're going to set them aside we still think annabelle's question the question of how she should ethically design her autonomous vehicles is an important question to be answered. Okay, here's how the talk is gonna roughly go. Um, We wanna undermine or raise questions for a view we call trolley optimism. Very roughly, trolley optimism is the view that we can take lessons directly from trolley cases and apply that to questions about how to make AVs behave in accident scenarios. So we wanna undermine that view. We'll start by spelling out what that view is in a bit more detail and we'll distinguish two kinds of trolley optimism. One we call democratic trolley optimism, that's roughly the view that the way you decide what the right thing to do in trolley cases is to vote on it. Um, And Jeff will go into that in some more detail. And then standard trolley optimism is the kind that philosophers tend to endorse where you just sit in your armchair and think real hard. Um, uh, You laugh at that, but uh, that's what we do. Uh, And then we'll turn to talking about um, some problems for democratic trolley optimism, explain why we think that's a bad view, independently of whether trolley optimism is a good idea. Um, and then we'll look at a, an objection that's been raised uh, called, we're going to call it the disanalogy objection, by people we're going to call trolley pessimists, uh, people who think trolley optimism is false. Um, and we think that disanalogy objection is not quite great. Uh, so then we'll turn to a different grounds for trolley pessimism, the one we think is actually right, which we call the technological objection. Um, I'll go through that in some detail. And then I'll take up a few objections, replies and implications. Um, but for the talk about trolley optimism, I'm going to turn it over to Jeff. Okay, so uh, on the next slide, there's an argument
1: uh, in premise and conclusion form. I'm not going to turn to it just yet because I want you to listen to me for a moment before reading the argument. Um, but uh, importantly, um, the argument that you're about to see, uh, we think captures um, in a kind of in kind of precise detail what what we're calling. Um, Uh, trolley optimism. So trolley optimism, as we understand it, just is subscription to uh, the argument that I'm um, about to unveil. But again, the the rough idea, and it's okay, I think, to work through the talk mostly with just the rough idea in your head, which is that uh, trolley cases are such that we can use them to more or less directly settle questions like the question that confronts Annabelle. So we think the argument... um, works like this, so premise one, some accident scenarios are structurally similar to trolley cases, I'll unpack that in a moment. Uh, and then premise two just says, if that's so, if, if there are accident scenarios that are structurally similar to trolley cases, then engineers like Annabelle should work to program AVs so that they behave in accident scenarios in ways that conform to the appropriate verdicts in the relevant trolley cases. That sounds kind of technical, I'll unpack that. Uh, in a second, and so then we and then we just conclude that that's so. That's what engineers really ought to do. Okay, so <coughs> let's um, let's clarify a couple of points about about both premises. So first, I want to say something about what structural similarity is supposed to amount to. Um, so imagine uh, the the standard trolley case, and perhaps if you're not familiar with it, the standard case looks like this. Um, there's a trolley proceeding down the tracks, it's out of control, um, if, it, if it continues uh, on course it'll strike and kill five workers on the track. There's a bystander nearby who can pull a switch to divert the trolley onto a side track. Unfortunately, on that track there's one innocent worker um, and we just sort of stipulate that um, one of two things will happen, either the trolley will continue on its course, striking and killing the five, or the bystander will pull the switch, um, diverting the trolley onto the second track, in which case the single worker will be will be struck and, um, struck and killed. And so um, the idea is that for trolley cases like that and uh, various other iterations of them, we can imagine accident scenarios involving AVs that are structurally similar. So imagine that a car uh, and here, it's it's so easy to slip into metaphor, but the car finds itself, um, you know, uh, it, uh, uh, approaching an intersection. There are five pedestrians who have just leapt out in front. It can swerve, but only uh, into the path um, of, of another pedestrian. So, um, when we're thinking about structural similarity, we have we have at least three things in mind for what it would take for uh, a trolley case to be structurally similar to to an accident scenario. So so first, there's an identical number of possible routes to travel. So in the two cases I just uh, offered, we have two routes. Uh, second, the moral consequences for each route traveled are the same. In the one case, five innocents are killed. In the second case, one innocent is killed. And then third, um, Sort of the way that that happens is the same. That is, um, those outcomes are produced in roughly the same causal sort of way. Um, to clarify that, imagine a more complicated case. Um, this is, I think this will be the last um, <laughs> sort of case that we march through because while fun, the details I think don't matter very much. But another famous trolley case that you might be familiar with um, is a case in which um, the bystander no longer has a switch um, to prevent the deaths of the five, they can um, they can act only by pushing a very large person in front of the trolley. Um, and if they do that, the trolley will strike and kill the large person and derail. Okay? Um, the bystander herself is not large enough um, to, to sacrifice herself, uh, imagine. And it, okay, and so again, we can imagine uh, it'll be a more complicated case, but we can imagine an, um, a case involving probably two autonomous vehicles that are governed by the same network. You can imagine sacrificing one vehicle to prevent another from striking and killing five. So that's the, the kind of idea we have in mind when we talk about the, the causal sequence. Okay. Um, so much for for premise one. Okay. So premise two is intentionally intentionally broad. Um, it's intentionally capacious in the sense that um, we want all trolley optimists to be able to sign on to it, and then different versions of trolley optimism will be distinguished according to how they understand uh, premise two. So premise two says that um, um, if we've got these structurally similar uh, cases, then we should uh, work to program the EVs so that they behave in those accident scenarios in ways that conform to the appropriate verdicts in the relevant Trolley case. So what is um, conforming to an appropriate verdict? This this is the question that Trolley optimists will disagree with each other um, about. So to... um, to explain that in, in some more detail, let's distinguish, as John alluded to earlier, between what we're calling standard trolley optimism and democratic trolley optimism. So standard trolley optimism is, um, as the name suggests, I think what you would expect um, a trolley optimist to think. They just think what you do is you think about the trolley cases, you figure out what the right answer is. So standard trolley case: should we should we pull the switch or not? Should we push the large person or not? And then for engineering autonomous vehicles, we just make the car do what the trolley would end up doing if the person if the bystander was acting correctly. Right? So you just take the correct verdicts in trolley cases and program accordingly. So maybe we a- we just ask moral philosophers. We ask. Um, The greatest trolleyologists. We just call Francis Cam up and say, you know, like, what do we do in this case? And she tells us, and then we and then we program the cars accordingly. Okay, but we think there are other ways to understand um, the use of of uh, trolley cases to settle questions like Annabelle's, and and we want premise two to capture these as well. So consider what we call um, democratic trolley optimism. And This view is distinguished from its um, standard, standard cousin by offering um, a different set of verdicts to which we should attend. So, according to democratic trolley optimism, what matters isn't what um, you know our greatest philosophers tell us is the correct answer in some case, um, but what matters is what sort of we the people judge to be correct. So. Um, the rough idea here is that conformity with the appropriate verdicts would mean conformity with a group with group preferences about um, uh, about what uh, what we ought to do in the trolley cases so we uh, sort of find out what we prefer and then make the cars conform with that verdict so this is um, a less familiar idea um, but one that ought to be wrestled with so i want to We're gonna start digging in here. So um, we're gonna begin by illustrating this idea a little further and then raising some objections that are particular to the democratic um, variant of trolley optimism. So um, the democratic variant is best illustrated um, via some work that's grounded um, in part in data collected by this online platform called Moral Machine. Some of you might be familiar with this. Moral Machine uh, is, a, is an online platform, it's a website, run out of the MIT uh, Media Lab. Um, and according to its creators, the website is designed um, for, for two purposes. I'll just quote here. This website aims to take the discussion of, now I'm editorializing, uh, of autonomous vehicle ethics Returning to the quote, further by providing a platform for one, building a crowdsourced picture of human opinion on how machines should make decisions when faced with moral dilemmas, and two, crowdsourcing assembly and discussion of potential scenarios of moral consequence. So, what happens when you um, uh, when you visit the Moral Machine website is you're presented with a with a series of cases that that look like this. Um, so. In this case, we see that the, uh, the car is uh, traveling down the road. Uh, it has a certain number uh, and composition of passengers in the car. Uh, and it, uh, if it continues un- un- uninterrupted, it will strike and kill these pedestrians. Or it could swerve into this concrete barrier, uh, thus killing the occupants of the car. And you're asked, what should the self-driving car do? Uh, and you click an option. And then you're presented with another another case. I think in the standard um, version of this, you're presented with seven cases, um, and the the website is collecting data about user preferences. Now the second purpose, which I'll return to in a second, again, was to crowdsource assembly of these things. So there's also a function on this website where you can go build your own cases. And I'll talk about the variables um, open to you um, when you do that uh, in a moment. Um, So, what what the what the exemplars of the democratic trolley um, uh, optimistic approach have in mind is that we can use data like that correct, uh, collected by Moral Machine to sort of settle um, the the question that confronts Annabelle um, without waiting too deeply into the into the technical side of things. Their idea is that um, we get this wide range of data, I can't remember in the latest Nature article, I think they report that they have like 40 million, right. um, uh, 40 million um, um, users um, for which they've collected data. So the idea is we'll build a preference model for each individual, and then we'll aggregate them so that we model our group preferences. And then we'll just use that model of our group preference to um, to settle driving and again, the spirit of this is that we're kind of vote we're like thereby voting on, 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 on how um, questions like Annabelle's uh, should be should be settled. Okay, so we think that's not a very good idea, um, and some of the um, we, we have sort of two sets of objections. Um, some of what I'll say is uh, really targeted at the use of moral machine uh, in this context. But we also think there are um, reasons to be skeptical of of a democratic approach, whether it makes use of of the moral machine site or not. So let's start with with the first set of objections, according to which um, we should really be very cautious about um, the idea that it's morally permissible to use the data collected um, via the moral machine um, platform in the way that these researchers have proposed. So uh, first, we're worried that at the data collection stage, there are variables, there are problematic variables um, present um, in the case. So uh, when, you're, when you're building um, cases of your own, uh, you're, you're presented with this screen. This is where you're allowed to choose the characters who will star in your tragic play. Um, and what these variables represent, uh, I always forget to remind myself, but it's man, woman, boy, girl, old man, old woman, large man, large woman, notice that, that those are all gendered, now for some reason we switched to sex, this is just how they label them, um, male, exec- male executive, female executive, male doctor, female doctor, male athlete, female athlete, pregnant woman, homeless person who has neither sex nor gender uh criminal who has neither sex nor gender baby dog cat okay so these are the options and um so these are all the variables that you'll see present at least for the for the figures there are other variables sort of in how the car drives but these are the, the variables with respect to the characters okay so first worry um some of these variables are clearly morally irrelevant right just just straightforwardly, right? Like body shape is not morally significant um, in this context. Maybe there's like some odd context where it might be morally significant, but certainly not this one, right? Um, But um, unsurprisingly um, and depressingly, um, people have views that uh, correspond to body shape, right? Whether they hold these views consciously or not. So we should expect that um, in the voting behavior of the users of this platform, we'll see um, a sort of bias toward um, a certain body shape or a certain sex or a certain gender, um, you know, criminality. Um, But of course, we don't want the morally irrelevant things to govern the downstream um, uh, driving behavior uh, uh, of 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 our robots. Um, So, so long as there are, um, so long as there are variables in there that are both morally irrelevant and we have preferences about, we're worried about um, um, operating in this way. Uh, Then further uh, at the, at the modeling stage where we're like taking people's clicking behavior and then trying to build a preference model as a result of it, we're worried about this too. So here, a, a simple reason is just that we don't think we're in a very good position to take people's clicking behavior in this context to be very good evidence of their preferences. Um, and that's because there are, um, <clears throat> I think we think like pretty good reasons for people to click in particular ways um, that, 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 that really aren't um, revelatory of their preferences. So for one thing, we've both been in classes where instructors will have a class vote and then um, we'll just proceed through the through the cases according to vote so there we're probably representing no individual's um, preference i've gone through this where i just want to see lots of cases and so i just kind of like click through and i think like what's going to happen next will there be five cats in the car and like three dogs and a and a criminal uh, (laughs) in, in in the crosswalk that's a case um and then um also like maybe more problematically than those first two points it's impossible given the way the experiment is now set up to register indifference. So the only way you can proceed to a new case is to select is to positively answer the question um, What should the dri- what should the self-driving car do? You have to answer should it kill the five cats or the three dogs and the criminal um, So now imagine that you're in a case in which it's less silly than that but it's um, you know a large woman, um, and a large man. What should the car do? Um, it's, a for- it's a forced choice you can't express um, indifference. So we're worried that the, the design is, is, is simply not um, well constructed. Now, okay, obvious um, response, great, let's just you know, let them know, uh, and they can throw out the 40 million data points that they have already, but that's okay, millions of people are gonna keep using it. We'll just design the experiment better um, and you know, publish a new article in, in Nature. Um, but we think we think there are reasons to be dubious of the of the approach, generally, and that's because it's just not clear that um, these folks have have offered us any reason to think that um, choices like Annabelle's ought to be settled democratically, right? So implicit um, in this methodology is that there's something morally preferable about settling um, this engineering challenge um, by by vote or by appeal to to group preference. But um, we certainly don't think of all decisions um, as being appropriately um, answered in that way. Um, Certainly not all decisions uh, in the private sphere um, in which which we're imagining Annabelle to be operating, even though um, her decisions might have uh, important um, consequences so absent some kind of normative argument that um, that this is the good that this is a good way to go we at least should um, you know we, we at least should suspend judgment even if things were um, uh, designed perfectly um, And just to, just to build that point out a, a little bit um, more precisely um, part of what we think is dubious here is the idea that, even if we got a really good picture of our group preference, um, we're dubious (coughs) of the idea that we should treat it as a sort of immovable object around which we have to navigate, right? So um, the the implicit idea here is that if only we knew what we all thought, then we would know what the right thing to do is. But notice that you might think that if only we knew what we all thought, we we would be in a better position to change what we all think, right? Um, it could be that we're just getting it wrong, um, and instead of um, engineering cars in this way, we ought to engage in like uh, a sort of mass um, uh, uh, mass um, PR campaign uh, to change what people think about um, how cars ought to behave. That's that's it's just a question that it should be settled by doing ethics. Okay. Um, quick note. That's not to say that there's no, that it wouldn't be useful to know these things, right? Um, if, the, if the design really was well built, it could be very, very, very important to know what the public thinks um, about these kinds of questions. Um, presumably because it will influence their uptake of the relevant um, technology. But again, we might just wanna know what they think so that we can tell them that they're wrong. Okay, so, so much for the democratic um, variant. Um, so we want to turn now to assessing a uh, significant objection um, to uh, to the optimist's argument. So this would be an objection that would threaten any version of trolley optimism. And as John previewed earlier, ultimately, we think that this objection fails. So we're going to be pessimists ourselves. Um we're going to explain um, uh, uh, this way of getting to pessimism. Um, and explain why we don't think it's um, it's well justified, and then and then I'll hand things over to John to present a truly compelling case, our case. <laughs> okay, so um, this objection um, we call the disanalogy objection, and as the name suggests, the basic idea is that trolley um, optimism, as we presented it earlier, is unjustified because at the end of the day. Uh, trolley cases and accident scenarios involving AVs are just not so similar as they appear. There are points of disanalogy, and because there are points of disanalogy, we can't immediately infer um, from solutions to the to the trolley cases um, solutions to to engineering um, um, uh, options like like animals. So this um, this objection we think is best raised. Uh, the best version of this we think is raised. Uh, in, a, in a recent paper by Sven Nyholm and Jens Smids. So we're gonna focus on their reasoning in particular. Um, so I'm gonna explain how that reasoning is meant to work and then, and then try to try to poke some holes. So um, Nyholm and Smids say that there are three important points of disanalogy between accident scenarios and, and trolley cases. So first they say uh, the decision-making context in the two kinds of cases is very different. So they say, you know, imagine what you're told about the trolley case, right? The trolley is speeding down the track. Um, the bystander has to decide um, right now, right? If the bystander doesn't act, the trolley will speed by and kill the five, right? So um, you have to decide immediately, my home and Smith said. That's not true in Annabelle's case. Um, Annabelle, is deciding prospectively about how the car will behave in future scenarios that it's not yet in. It's not like she has to code right now, um, or the you know the the car will hit the five pedestrians and not swerve to hit the dog. Um, no, she's deciding um, about this future behavior. Okay, return to the trolley case again. Um, they say um, that decision making is happening in isolation. The bystander is right there by the lever. All by herself not so with annabelle she's a member of a large team um and lastly this is supposed to be the sort of the last support for the idea that the, the decision-making contexts are just analogous. uh in the trolley cases we have a narrowly circumscribed set of information available to the bystander right all they know is um basically what i've told you right um they have very limited information it's just about the the outcomes in terms of who will die. Unlike Annabelle's case, they say, um, in principle Annabelle can collect whatever information she pleases um, uh, is pleasing to her um, about uh, that could inform her decision. The bystander is not in that kind of case. So the decision-making context, they say, are disanalogous and this threatens the optimist's position. Second point of disanalogy is that in Trolley cases, issues of moral and legal liability are typically stipulated away, right? So some of us in the room have taught intro to moral philosophy classes, some of us in the room have been in intro to to moral philosophy classes, and and every time someone says, like, okay, but if the bystander pulls the switch, is she going to go to jail? Um, Or uh, will people, you know, blame her? Uh, for her decision, and the instructors always say, no, 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 just forget that, right? I've already told you everything that's of moral significance in the thought experiment. All that matters are the outcomes in terms of the deaths. But of course, that's not going to be true in the real world where AVs are operating on the road. Issues of criminal and moral responsibility um, threaten almost immediately. Okay, and last point of putative disanalogy, um, in AV accident scenarios, unlike in trolley cases, there's a high degree of uncertainty. So again, think about the way that I just described how most um, moral philosophy professors describe trolley cases. We just stipulate um, that the bystander knows with certainty that um, uh, the switch is well-functioning. That if they do nothing, not only will the five be hit, but they'll be killed. um, Similarly for the one. But of course this isn't true, Um, for autonomous vehicles. Um, Even the best engineers um, won't know with certainty how the car will behave under under certain conditions. We don't know what conditions it will encounter uh, uh, on the road, not with certainty. Maybe at best we can give kind of um, well-grounded probabilistic guesses about what will happen or or what um, scenarios it will encounter. And so Sven, uh, Nyholm and Smith say, Um, we have these three points of of disanalogy. Okay, so again, we're pessimists too. Um, Ultimately, we want to agree with the conclusion that um, and smiths are after. Um, But we don't think that the disanalogy objection is a good way uh, of getting there. So um, we think that none of the justification, none of the putative justification that's grounded in these points of disanalogy really, Holds much longer. Okay. So I'm going to explain our our responses in kind of two steps. Um, first, I'll talk about decision making, the decision making point on its own, and then I'll take the second two points of disanalogy together. So on the decision making um, uh, context, we we really think Naiman and, and Smiths have erred here by mischaracterizing what ethical theorists are doing when we're using trolley cases. Okay. So um, imagine that you know, imagine you yourself thinking about the trolley case, um, and you're wondering what the bystander should do, and you have to make a moral judgment for yourself. But notice that um, when you're doing that, you are not the bystander, right? You aren't in a trolley case um, (laughs) when you're thinking about trolley cases. It's not like in the good place (laughs) when this. uh, uh I'll, I'll unveil no spoilers when this person with otherworldly other powers puts this moral philosopher in a trolley case right um, it's, it's not true that you have to make a decision right now, right. Um, it's not true that you have to make the decision in isolation. In fact, notice that moral philosophers almost never do those two things, right We're very <laughs> slow <laughs> um, and we like to talk and argue <laughs> with each other. Right? So the relevant context that we should be thinking about is the, is the theoretician's um, or the ethicist's context, right? Um, because that's, um, if there's meant to be an analogy here, that's the, relevant con- that's the relevant context where the analogy would hold, the context in which we're trying to settle the moral question. The moral question is what should the bystander do? The question isn't, um, oh my God, you only have five seconds to act, what's the bystander gonna do, mm-hmm. right? Um OK, so we think that um, there's just a kind of mistake um, being made um, in their appeal to the to, to the difference in the decision-making context. As John will make clear, we do think that there's something really important about Annabelle's decision-making context, but it has nothing to do with the, um, with the evidence that Niall and Smith's offered to, to support that. Idea. Okay. Okay, now take li- let's take liability and uncertainty together because we think a, a the same response um, is adequate here. and Smith are definitely right that in typical trolley cases, um, we're stipulating away issues of legal and moral liability and that we're stipulating that the outcomes are known with certainty. But at the end of the day, we think there's nothing special about trolley cases that requires either of those things. So trolley cases are thought experiments that are designed to test moral hypotheses. So um, one way about thinking about the relationship between the standard trolley case I described and the large man case. So you can think of the large man case as testing this hypothesis. Um, The the bystander should always act so as to minimize the number of deaths. That seems like a plausible um, first pass about what explains why she should pull the switch in the first case. Okay, let's test that hypothesis. Is it really the case that the bystander should push the large person and kill them in order to prevent the deaths of the five? Most people think no. Similarly, you might think that um, issues of legal liability might make a moral difference in one of these cases. Okay, design a trolley case in which you introduce a variable of legal liability. You might distinguish from the first trolley case, the standard trolley case, a non-standard trolley case in which it's just the same except the bystander is threatened with with criminal um, charges. You might wonder, does that make a difference? Similarly, we think so far as the methodology of these cases is concerned, it's perfectly okay to introduce uncertainty, right? And again, what you're doing there is testing a new moral hypothesis. Does it make a difference if um, the outcomes are known with 80% certainty as opposed to 60% certainty? Um, And we think this point basically generalizes um, which is why we're very skeptical of any version of the disanalogy objection. In principle, these thought experiments are highly flexible, allowing us to introduce um, maybe any number of variables that we like, um, that, that we think we, we, might like to, that we might like to test. Okay, so um, fear not, pessimists. Uh, a, a good argument for pessimism
0: uh, comes now. Hi everybody, back. Um, uh, so Jeff, so far in the talk, what we've gotten to is why everyone's wrong about the ethics of AVs. Like that's what our talk's meant to capture. The optimists are wrong. Um, well, we've heard yeah, we've heard why the optimists are wrong in terms of at least the democratic version. We're going to give an argument for pessimism, but we heard also why the pessimists are wrong. They, the points of disanalogy they mentioned just don't do the work that they think they do. So why should you be a trolley pessimist? Well. The case for trolley pessimism that we want to build rests on an understanding of the underlying technologies that power autonomous vehicles. And so I have to give a quick primer on the difference between machine learning algorithms and traditional algorithms. So an algorithm is just a mapping of inputs to outputs. It's a set of instructions that tell you how to get from some input to some output. Um, In traditional algorithms, those used until recently for pretty much everything, um, all those steps in the input to the output are specified by hand which is not to say they're deterministic, but a programmer knows how you're getting from step A to step B to step C for every step of the process to get your output. Um, so a, a simple example of that would be like an adding algorithm. I think I'll talk about that in the next slide, but it just says like, whenever the, whatever numbers the user inputs, sum them in and output the sum. Okay. Um, so that's this, uh, so that's the traditional approach. Um, there are many simple programs that would illustrate this approach. Uh, That's sort of how, outside of people who are thinking about this stuff now and even some of them, this is how everybody thinks of programs. Like people don't really have a paradigm for thinking about how machine learning works and I think we think that's part of the reason some people have been led astray to become trolley optimists. and we'll get to that. So when it comes to um, machine learning, the way it differs from traditional algorithms um, is that instead of coding in the steps from input to output, what you do is you take this thing called a machine learner and you give it a bunch of data. And you say, which kinds of outputs you like from that set of data, right? And then what it does is it writes its own algorithm that generates outputs of that type for inputs of that type and can then extrapolate, extrapolate to new cases. So, um, I think it's really useful to think of this a lot like dog training. So you, it would be amazing. I wish this were true. If you could get a neurosurgeon to just like wire in word commands to actions in your dog, but you can't. So what you do is you like mold their behavior and then you reward them and you do that in a lot of different contexts um, and you hope that the algorithm that they output is something like hear the word sit and then do an action. You know that doesn't always happen a lot. When if you read dog training manuals, that don't make make sure you don't lift your head when you say sit because if you do that, your dog might be latching onto this behavior um, and not the word. Um, so machine learning is like this. A simple case of spam filtering. This is a highly idealized explanation of it. But you get a bunch of spam emails, and you get a bunch of good emails, and you tell the computer, these ones are spam, and these ones are good. Um, and then you let it write an algorithm for checking new emails and labeling them as spam or not. And then users can they can basically reward the spam filter, good spam filter, by marking something as spam or not, or telling it was wrong when it marked it as spam when it wasn't. And so that's, how you sh- that's the paradigm of machine learning. Think dog training. Okay. Um, so traditional programming, specifying the inputs and outputs by hand, um, uh, machine learning, you're training, you're doing dog training. Now, at, uh, at first glance, you might think machine learning seems like a terribly inefficient way to program because it's so hard to ensure the, uh, it's, it seems like it'd be so much better to just tell it which behaviors you want exactly. But it would be impossible to code many applications in the traditional way, um, including spam filtering, if you want go home tonight and write down a set of rules that you think you could tell a computer to do that would identify all, reliably your spam emails as spam so you might get a good first pass if it's got random uppercase and lowercase letters mark it as spam and you'll do pretty good for that but spam gets more sophisticated you would not be able to handwrite write all the rules for a spam filter or you can try um, uh, but we can solve that problem with machine learning just by throwing tons and tons of training at it okay now, when it comes to AVs, they will be, in a deep sense, powered by machine learning. Um, you cannot have an AV without machine learning uh, and only using traditional algorithms. For now, at least, in all the visual detection systems, all object recognition that's done by machine learning, by, by sort of autonomous vehicle sensors, is programmed by machine learning. Um, It's true that many car manufacturers use traditional programming to translate that input data from the sensors to behavioral data, although some car platforms want to do the whole thing from the ground up by just doing training. But there's no escaping the machine learning element in autonomous vehicles. You just can't handwrite the the relevant kinds of um, sensor detection things for object recognition. Um, That's one of the big areas where machine learning. So we're stuck um, with machine learning in autonomous vehicles. So don't think of them as being purely in the traditional algorithm paradigm. Now the fact that machine learning is central to AV technologies has important implications for the ethics of AV design. So so as a first lesson, um, some people in the literature, um, Patrick Lindby example, emphasize the importance of focusing on accident scenarios because they think that like, well, you have to code for every scenario. So you'd be negligent not to, even if it doesn't happen very much, you'd be negligent in not programming for accident scenarios. But that's just uh, not understanding the paradigm of machine learning. So all you need to really understand about this graph is that everything under the curve is that's every scenario an autonomous vehicle could be in, the probability tells you how likely it is to be in that scenario. And the way you're going to program this, it doesn't have to be this way, is you're going to provide a data set, a tra- set of training data about what certain scenarios look like and tell it what you want it to have, de- say, detected in that scenario or done in that scenario for simplicity. And then it's going to extrapolate from this data lake to every other point in this plot. And so it's not that you have to code for accident scenarios. You, can, you could. You could put a lot of these things in your training data, but you don't have to, and it will make decisions about what to do. That is the wonderful part of machine learning. That's the reason it's a functioning technology. Um, and that's what we couldn't do. Like We couldn't possibly write an algorithm that covered all these things. Um, just turn randomly. That's what it would look like. <laughs> um, so, it's not a, so just the first point is that once you're in the machine learning paradigm, you'll see that it's not a kind of negligence not to code for every scenario. That's just not a real option. Now, that doesn't undermine trolley optimism. Um, it just sort of, it doesn't, it doesn't ground a case for trolley pessimism. What it does, is sort of teaches us um, we should avoid the motivation of thinking we should be trolley optimists because we have to code for these scenarios no matter what. Um, but the fact that AVs rely on machine learning, it does more than undermine that motivation. It actually does ground a case for trolley optimi- uh, pessimism. Um, and to see that, just we got to realize when we think about how we want autonomous vehicles to actually behave. We have to think about how to influence particular behaviors in particular scenarios via a training regime. I don't want to use that word. A train, a training program. Um, didn't want to use that word either. <laughs> a tra- some training decisions, uh, and this gives rise to a whole host of questions about that are et- going to be ethical questions that precede questions about how we should program Bs to behave in ways that mirror the verdicts in trial cases. So to, just to illustrate this idea, it's useful to distinguish a variety of questions we might ask about the relationship between accident scenarios, trolley cases, and machine learning techniques. So here's four questions. Regime. How much of the training regime should be dedicated to dealing with explicitly with accident scenarios? So that's a question you could ask when you start thinking in the training paradigm. Here's another question. Let's assume we're going to include some accident scenarios in our training regime. How should we structure them? Should the accident scenarios in the training set look like the ones that are like trolley cases? And which trolley cases? All of them? Some of them? Which ones? Um, verdict: Should the verdicts in trolley cases be used to assign rewards or punishments to responses in accident scenarios? And then behavior: Should AIs be programmed to behave in accident scenarios in ways that conform with the appropriate verdict in similarly structured trolley cases? Now, um, the trolley optimist is focused on behavior. But the machine learning paradigm teaches us that we should think about these other questions as well. And notice that if the answer to the question, the first question is none, none of the training regime should include any accident scenarios, then the answer to all the other questions is no. If we should include none, then we obviously shouldn't, stru- we shouldn't try to make them behave certain ways in accident. We're gonna do what I just showed in that graph. We're gonna let the training lake decide how to manage accident scenarios because we decided to include none in the training data? And we might answer regime that way. Um, Why might you answer regime that way? That's a good question. Why might you think that the answer to regime is none? Well, let's go back to dog training for a minute. And let's say you want your dog to do lots of things. You want them to shake and sit and blah, blah, blah. But you're really concerned to ensure that the dog stays on command, not just at home or in the dog park, but everywhere you might be. In order to do that, in order to ensure that behavior, you have to provide lots of dog training. Has anybody ever trained a dog? My dog, uh, when I taught it to leave it, thought leave it was a thing we only did in the living room because I'm an idiot and only trained her to do it in the living room. So when I tried it in the yard, she just ate the snacks that I left on the ground. So it was, I had to rebuild a new training thing. So you have to provide lots of training data. Um, And so, but realize that if you're spending, if you have limited time and limited resources, the more time you spend training one behavior, the less you can dedicate to other behaviors. Now going back to our, our car, um, the same is likely true in the context of ensuring that an AV behaves a certain way in an accident scenario. If you want to get it right in not just one trolley-like accident scenario, but all the ones you care about, you're going to have to dedicate serious training resources to achieving those behaviors. So you can imagine there just be two, two training regimes, um, and if you want to ensure the right thing in accident scenarios, it doesn't matter what the proportions are, you're going to dedicate, say, half your training regime to dealing with accident scenarios of a certain kind. But that could come at a deep cost. In the dog analogy if i spend all my time training for stay i might come home to a mess on the floor and if i overtrain for accident scenarios in the autonomous vehicle regime there could be trade-offs with everyday driving functionality now we don't know what those trade-offs would be it could turn out it's an empirical question we'd have to well, hopefully we don't do this given our views but you'd have to actually build these cars and let them do things but it could turn out that by over for the right the right responses in trolley like accident scenarios they just end up in those scenarios more often. They're just worse at regular driving. Or maybe they're really good at responding in that way, and the frequency remains low, um, but you get more minor accidents. We have no idea what's going to happen when you try when you mess with the training regimes. Um, so that's why you might decide, or that's why it's, a, it's an interesting question or an open question, whether what the answer to regime is, how much of your training regime should be dedicated to accident scenarios. Um, now, that all said, the case we're making doesn't hang on our answering regime in any particular way or there being any actual trade offs. What matters for our purposes and what the possibility of trade offs really makes vivid is that regime is an ethical question. Um, it's a kind of and it proceeds, it's a question we have to ask before we think about behavior. Um, they, the question of regime invokes value judgments and requires principles to resolve. And those kinds of ethical questions. Are exactly the sorts of questions that it makes sense to apply the traditional tools of moral philosophy. So, trolley cases might be relevant here. Made Marcus leave. <laughs> uh, uh, trolley cases might be relevant here, right? They might justify our being attentive to different differences. So, the standard picture of how we use trolley cases, as Jeff alluded to, is that, or, or thought experiments generally, is we have some principles and we use thought experiments as a test case, and we. We do a bunch of work to sort of get our principles and thought experiments in alignment and get rid of the ones that end up being bad. And then we take whatever principles we turn out to think are best ju- justified or best judgments, and we apply those to some ethically sensitive design question. Like the question of regime. How many accident scenarios should I include in my training regime? Um, but what that doesn't, what, so it's not that trolley cases aren't relevant, it's not that we shouldn't think about them, but what it te- what the separation of the different questions teaches us is that the way that trolley cases figure in might be about different ethical questions that have nothing to do with behavior. That we have to answer those questions first. Um, uh, Another way to think about this is that um, when Annabelle is thinking about what she should do when training her AVs, she should think holistically about all the different ways she answers these questions and how that might impact all the different ways the autonomous vehicle might behave. She doesn't just get to think in isolation about the behavior of cars in weird scenarios. Those aren't an isolated event. Instead, she has to think about how to do ethics in a way that answers a whole range of different questions. So, what the optimist wants us to do is to transfer our judgments about thought experiments directly to a specific issue, to accident scenarios, and say, and they say something like, we're just missing something important if we don't do that. And we get the temptation. Like, imagine an AV has. Annabelle listens to our talk, and she goes, oh, I'm going to do just ethical theorizing. And then the first thing that happens is her car gets in an, an accident scenario that looks a lot like a trolley case, um, and it veers away from the one and kills the five. And we go, well, see, she should have paid more attention to accident scenarios. She really should care more about those. And the answer to that, should she have done that, is no, <laughs> she should not. And to, to explain why, let's think about it from the point of view of how moral philosophers think about these things. So... Let's assume after some serious theorizing, we actually don't think this is the right principle, but let's assume that we think about all the trolley cases, we talked to Francis Cam for a long time, and we settle on this principle, maximize lives saved. Now you might think, maximize lives saved (laughs) teaches us that Annabelle should have programmed the car to veer to kill the one instead of the five. But that is not what it entails. Given the different questions, Maximize live save might tell us to favor design one, because that's really the way you maximize lives save. And it's just an unfortunate consequence that sometimes it's gonna be in a rare scenario where it kills five instead of one. But that just given the nature of auto- autonomous vehicles and their reliance on machine learning, there's just no other option. There's no separating out the accident scenarios from the other behavior. So the lesson we're, lesson we're after is that just since there are ethical questions that proceed and are in principle answerable independently behavior, the fact that trolley cases are structurally similar to accident scenarios doesn't provide any reason whatsoever to program AVs to behave in ways that mirror appropriate verdicts in those cases. If the answer to behavior is yes, which it could still be, that we should focus on some trolley-like accident scenarios and make their behaviors look a certain way, it's only going to be because of the answers we've given to a bunch of preceding ethical questions. So the process to think about this is we take our cases and thought experiments and ethical principles, that informs judgments about training and all these other questions, and then that leads to some judgment about what the right behaviors are, or what the behaviors should be. Okay, so that's the basis. That's when you take machine learning paradigms seriously and see how the role they play in autonomous vehicles, you see that, or we think you see that, you should be a trolley pessimist. You shouldn't go directly from, as the optimist does, judgments about the trolley cases to (laughs) behaviors. And I want to just turn to some brief objections um, in the time that's left. Uh, Two kinds of objections you might raise. One kind of objection is technological. It just says, you don't understand machine learning, Jeff and John. Um, Or if you knew how smart us programmers were, you'd realize we could solve your problems. Um, and We'll take that up a little bit. Um, And then the other one is just philosophical. We missed something on the philosophy side. So I'll talk through some objections in both of these areas. Um, So let's talk about technological objections. Um, So one thing you might say is that, like, look, if you had infinite training data, every computer programmer will, every machine learning computer scientist will tell you this is true. If you had infinite training data and infinite processing power, you wouldn't have to worry about this problem. You could have it do exactly what you wanted in every single scenario. Problem solved. So you really can make it do what you want accident scenarios and not worry about what that means for everyday driving scenarios. That's true, you can basically see that because basically your training data just includes the whole population of things you want to do. Now, that's obviously not a real solution because just, I heard yesterday that Google has some word on there, octoflops, exoflops. They have 10 exaflops of data. Um, despite them having all that data, they don't have enough data to do this. It's that they, have, they don't have data over every training scenario, and they definitely don't have infinite processing power. They'll give it a few years, maybe. But what the infinite training data response points to is a mechanism by which you might try to respond to us by saying, like, look, maybe there are some tricks within computer science that let you isolate the problem of accident scenarios and keep that problem distinct from the more holistic picture of the other things the autonomous vehicle has to do. Um, so, and there's, programmers are smart. They're clever in ways that I am not, um, and maybe not, maybe Jeff too. Um, uh, they can make decisions about which type of learner to use, what type of training regime to use, how to, com- how to compose training sets. They can manually reweight things in their Bayesian nets um, to get them to do interesting things. Um, they have this strategy called divide and conquer, which is that you take a problem, divide it into some problems, and then train for those sub-problems separately. Um, so maybe there's some trick in the toolkit which will enable this, what it would have to enable is this. That you can address all the problems having to do with accident scenarios without that leaking into anything else. Without that um, altering your ethical calculations about any other decision you might make about training the AV to behave in other scenarios. Um, th- that's like the, the first thing they have to show. Um, so I'm just going to talk about, it. The, it seems to us the best strategy is the divide and conquer thing. This is how the machine learning people manage highway versus city driving, which present very different kinds of obstacles. Um, So you take a problem, you say there's city driving, there's highway driving. Let's train different algorithms to manage those different tasks. And then you can use something like GPS to tell the car when to deploy which algorithm. So maybe you do this for for accident scenarios too. You say, here's my accident scenario, traditional algorithm, let's just say, whatever for managing accident scenarios, and here's non-accident scenarios, and I'll just tell it when to deploy that algorithm. We think this is sort of the best approach. But it's got, uh, uh, sorry, it's got a couple problems. First, um, it's not really clear that this is feasible. You can sort of do that. You can say, like, here's the algorithm I want to manage accident scenarios. Here's the algorithm for everything else or the sub-algorithms for everything else. But you still need to stitch those together. Your car needs to make a decision about whether it's in an accident scenario or not. And that itself is going to involve a training regime. And so you're back to answering questions like, regime, blah, 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 blah. So you're just pushing the problem back a step. Doesn't help you. Secondly, This, even if the solution worked, it just shows that you could train a car to behave in certain ways in accident scenarios in isolation of these other things. But because we're using machine learning, we don't have to. We we won't ask, should we do that? Or should we just train the car using only typical driving scenarios and let it behave as it will in the accident scenario? So the ethical question still persists. So it would be cool if this technological solution came to pass. And I'm sure we'd write a follow-up paper if it did. Um, but uh, it doesn't answer the ethical questions. Machine learning raises these ethical questions whether or not you can solve this technically. On the philosophical side, just two quick objections. One is that this is just a disanalogy objection. We're saying there's just a difference between Annabelle's context and um, uh, and the philosopher's context or the trolley context. Um, the reasoning behind this is easy to understand. It just seems like you can't help but you're, you can't help but sort of cite a difference between the context if you're going to make an objection. Um, and so, fine, sort of. Um, we're, we're okay with saying that. It's true that we do have to cite some difference between what's going on with Annabelle and what's going on with trolley cases. But we think the difference we're citing is not a difference in the structure of the cases. It's not that trolley cases aren't like accident scenarios in terms of number of deaths or morally salient features. What we think is important is that our objection highlights. the the specific nature of the difference between those contexts. That there's different questions that Annabelle has to attend to, that people in trial cases, when thinking about trial cases, they don't have to attend to. So it's not a difference between the particular details of the scenarios, but in about what ethical questions are relevant to those scenarios, because of the mechanism by which we direct behavior. Finally, um, a final philosophical objection, you might just say, no. Um, accident scenarios are of extreme importance. If you don't get the accident scenario behaviors right, you shouldn't even put these cars on the road. Um, we like to call this view trolley authoritarianism. It's just the view that you think getting right this very narrow set of cases is so morally important that you should, it's the only problem worth solving. Um, we don't really have a good response to that, it just sounds wrong. Um, and we don't think the trolley optimists who endorse their view think that either. They weren't, They didn't start by saying, well, if we can't solve accident scenarios, they just thought, they thought, there are a bunch of problems with autonomous vehicles, let's not forget this one. And we're saying, no, no, you can forget that one. But they never thought this is the only thing worth doing. Um, so I think that's uh, trolley authoritarianism. We think that's just mistaken. Uh, if someone's a trolley authoritarian, uh, maybe we'll come up with an argument on the spot. Um, but uh, thank you.